We have ignition sequence start. Short distance, high impact. Five, four, three, two, all engines running. Ten questions with Adam Zwar. Big names, great minds. Make yourself a cup of tea. Liftoff, we have liftoff. Welcome back to 10 Questions. This episode is with Christian O'Connell, the British broadcaster currently killing it on Australian radio. Back in 2018, Christian was the most popular breakfast host in the UK, with 3 million people listening to his show each morning. Then a combination of panic attacks and wanderlust made him decide to leave his top-rating show, uproot his family, and moved to Australia to become the breakfast host on Melbourne's Gold FM. In his book, No One Listens to Your Dad's Show, he charts his experiences with mental health and then his battle to take his show to number one. I love the book, and here we dig even deeper into his hilarious struggle to make friends in his adopted country and the sessions he had with a very unconventional therapist. Right at the end, I asked him what I thought was a professional question about how he acquired such a resonant speaking voice, and the answer was surprisingly personal. As usual, I started by asking Christian when he was most happy. When was I most happy? That's such a great question, isn't it? Because, you know, the temptation is to go for one finite moment. (laughs) And it is one thing you learn as a grown-up is happiness is fleeting. And what you thought happiness would be as a kid. I remember as a kid, I don't know if it was like this with you, Adam. I always thought, I can't wait to be a grown-up like my mum and dad. I can go to bed whenever I want and I'm in charge of the snacks, you know. And then you realise it's actually not all it's cracked up up to be being a grown-up. No one told me about all the admin that goes with it, all the mundanity. As soon as I wake up in the morning, and I have a great life, as soon as I wake up in the morning, it's a giant to-do list that drops down. (laughs) You know, oh, God, oh, God, so about the gas. Oh, there's something going wrong with with the, with the Wi-Fi and the backup for the computers for the kids' homeschooling. It's just like this. So happiness, happiness now sometimes can be right. A meeting gets cancelled, right? That is the happiest I'm going to be that day, right? 100%. How you define happiness as a grown-up is so different from how you define it as a kid. For a kid, it's joy. It's doing something, <laughs> right? It's getting it cancelled. You know, when my wife goes, oh. That uh, those people go around to a dinner party around at theirs, they're not very well, so they've cancelled. I would always go, oh, brilliant. Yeah. My wife goes, that isn't the spirit. I went, it is. I don't have, I, 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 something being cancelled is the happiest I'll be that day. It's a gift. And the other thing is putting something in your diary, I've realised, right? Going out with your mates, whatever, whatever the night's like, the real joy about it and happiness is just knowing that it's coming up. It's the anticipation yeah. of that. That's actually happiness sometimes, isn't it? It's having, and that's what's hard at the moment in, in lockdown, depending on where you're listening to us right now, is not having that. You don't have that little thing. You look at phone, oh, I'm seeing the, oh, I'm going around my mates. Well, I'm going to the pub to watch the footy. Yeah. Uh, oh, cool. I look forward to it. I don't know, the game might be awful. You might lose. That's different. But the actual, it's in that moment, having something in the anticipation of it. It's even when I start a new um, TV show and first episode in, you go, God, this is brilliant. And you have a quick look. Oh, 32 episodes over three seasons. You get so reassured. You're so happy. I know. So, yeah, happiness is a different, different thing now as a, as a grown-up. And then it, it is fleeting, but, you know, I've got two daughters and actually genuinely, when am I happiest? Laughing with them, watching something with them. It's the simple little things. It is. It sounds trite, but actually it's true. It is the simple little things. We were 
we were watching a TV show together, all of us, me and my daughters and my wife. It's very hard, it's like a Venn diagram of what we're watching. And I watched something from the 80s. It's boring and slow. I tried to get them to watch Beverly Hills Cop and saying it was part of their education. And it's really slow. Don't go back to it as a oh, grown-up. Really? Eddie's funny in it, but it's like 20 minutes before jokes and it's, <sighs> you know, there's no jump cuts. It's sluggish. But yeah, it's those brief little moments, I think, when you're in the moment and you're feeling something, aren't you? Whether it's happiness or sometimes even sad, sometimes even watching a TV show. There's a Qantas plane advert the other day that reduced me to utter tears. It was reminding us of the romance the potential, the excitement of getting on a plane, being excited about where you're going and what might happen. And I was I was in tears. And it made me think about mm. all the times I've got on a plane, taking it for granted, not really thinking, how lucky am I going to fly? I'm going to get in, up in the air and go somewhere else to a different country, a different land, and have a holiday or find out about those people. And actually how I wish I'd take more photos. I wish I'd just sort of journaled it or had sort of, I didn't know that actually it was going to be taken from us. It became more of an ordeal. Oh, I've got to get to the airport at 6am. Oh God. You know? And so, yeah, happiness to me is, is a changing thing, but it does come down to the simple little moments. Well, you mentioned your daughters before. Um, There was a great moment in the book where in your book where you're uh, you've made a friend and you go walking every Saturday morning and one day you both brought your daughters. And then, uh, well, I'll let you take a story up from this. Well, I did think about when I moved to the other side of the world from London to, to Australia, Melbourne was, oh, I haven't got any friends. You know, it literally was like, oh, I didn't pack them. How are we going to get friends? Hang on a minute. I'm middle-aged. How do middle-aged men make friends? You've kind of just got your mates. You don't remember meeting them or auditioning them or trying to find them. You just had them and half of them you're irritated by most of the time, aren't you? Yeah. Now, shut up, Dave. You know, and so, you know, suddenly you get somewhere and you're, you're middle-aged and you're like, and my wife was just picking up friends really easily, like women do. They're always, mm. they're always recruiting into the sisterhood. She would go and walk the dog, come back with two brand new phone numbers, right? Whereas I, for weeks, there was no, there was no new phone numbers going in. At one low point, my wife said, why don't you go back to the radio station about half four on a Friday to see, you know, maybe some of the younger sales guys, if they want to, are they going to the pub and hang out with them? I went, that is the creepiest thing in the world. So suddenly <laughs> the new British guy is hanging around what the photocopier. It's like David Brent, you know, reeking of aftershave and a leather jacket. <laughs> going, hey guys, where's all the action? I said, can't, can't do that. And then there was another really low point when, my wife and I were in Uber during the day and it was a Canadian guy and he'd only moved to Australia five years. And so we were sort of swapping notes. And he was really funny. He was really into his British comedies. And my wife texted me, even though she's next to me in the car going, get his phone number. And I said to her, going, I can't do that. Guys, you just can't do that. I can't ask for his phone number. And then my, I, I, and my wife said, you don't have any friends. Ask for his phone number. So she got out before me. And so I did. I said, hey, mate, you're getting on really well. It's an Uber driver. I said, why don't we swap numbers and, you know, hang out sometime? And I could tell the look he gave me was like, what, what are you doing? Wow. You know, when you know straight away, oh, God, well, actually, what am I doing? And he went, um, yeah, okay. You could tell he didn't want to give me a number. Gave me his phone number. I waited about three hours when it was a respectable amount of time texting, going, hey, really enjoyed that. You know, it'd be great to, uh, to hang out with beer or maybe a pizza and that. He still never, two and a half years later, replied. <sighs> And that was, that was a real low, low point. And then suddenly met this guy. I think every man's got a friend who is the alpha of the group, right? They're like the gray wolf. They're strong, confident, dynamic. They've got like a, an energy, a big dick energy about them. 
And this was this guy called John. And I thought, I don't think this guy likes me because I don't have any of those game abilities, right? <laughs> and then about, I mean, about two months after I first met him and we swapped numbers, he sent me a text that we were going, hey, Christian, fancy a man walk, few Ks. Even the fact he called it man walk was signposting to me. He was just letting me know this, is, this isn't just a walk. It's a man walk. A very Australian thing to say what it is. It's two guys, but hey. We're men. It's a man walk. It's a few Ks. This isn't a stroll yeah. like women do. This is a man <laughs> walk, okay? And so I did this then every Saturday, and it was like, it was really, I would really look forward to it all week. We just sort of chat. And then his daughter and my daughter became friends, and we said, hey, why don't, next Saturday, why don't we bring our teenage daughters? Terrible idea. They turn up, and they start taking the piss out of going, oh, my dad, my, my daughter said, oh, my, my dad, you know, Christian, if he's ever, he gets really um, angsty about being late for Big John. It's like he's got a crush on him. Victoria starts saying about Big John. It's like, oh, he's got his own special baseball cap and he puts aftershave on but uh, before he goes to meet Christian. When we were, I felt, we both felt so humiliated. It was the end of man walk. We never met again to go for a walk. This is what it is to be a man. It's fragile. Very fragile. And, that, and, and the fact- <laughs> We're fragile people. And you know, when you take- you know, because there's a whole different kind of there's a whole lot of different rules for women. Um, so we yes. there's not a, there's not that kind of flexibility where we can text someone and go, hey, do you want to get a pizza and hang out? You know, it's like, what? You've just crossed a whole lot of boundaries. Why, why is that? What is that about? Is I it don't the know. Way we're right? It's interesting, isn't it? But but you, when I read the book, it was really important to me because I just spent five years in Los Angeles. I had exactly the same situation. Amanda, my wife, found it very easy to make friends and I found it very difficult. Yeah. It's lonely, isn't it? No one talks about it. I find that interesting. Yeah. And so many people, so many women who've read the book, I said, God, I had no idea how lonely it is at times being a man, you know, and even middle-aged men, even a lot of them, even, you know, people who've got friends, you don't see your friends that often do you as a guy. No. Women find it easier. They can go, oh, we're just meeting up for coffee for half an hour. Men don't do that as much. You can do it, and we do, but it's it's not as easy, is it? No, it's a bit, it's all, and it's always kind of. There's yeah, a tension it's, around it. There's a a bit weird. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Why is that? What's up with this? It's a bit weird. I know. But your instant reaction is like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. What do you want? Yeah. Yeah. yeah what do you want? Yes. <laughs> um, Christian, question two Who would you like to apologize to and why? I think it would be my wife because I've been married uh, 23 years and I think I just like to, a, a, a generic sorry. You're never far away from one in a marriage, are you, right? I have one just chambered, even if I don't, just good to go, you know, so I don't have to, have to think about it. I just put it out there. It's like a quick draw. It's like, even if she's asking a question, I just go, oh, sorry. Yeah. Well, you haven't done anything wrong. Oh, sorry. <laughs> okay. You know, most engagement, I have done something wrong or I'm about to do something wrong or, I've, or I'm thinking about planning something wrong. So I think if I just had a generic get out of jail free card a sorry that for the rest of my life that would probably make our relationship a lot easier it's great, man. um what is your greatest regret do you know what i think it's the things i said no to um for, through overthinking them and i think if you do the kind of if you're the kind of people like you and i adam i think sometimes you know we live in our heads don't we writing creating mm. and that and i love that but also uh it means you can overthink things and I remember interviewing ACDC and we got on so well this and they were about to do a big gig that night at Hammersmith Apollo in London. And they went, why don't you come on and introduce us? You're oh. a fan. And I was like, oh, um, yeah, OK. And then I spent all day Friday overthinking it. 
And then I, I rang the, the management about two hours before. I went, look, I, I can't do it. I just can't do it. And they're like, oh, the, the boys want to meet you for a couple of beers beforehand. And they'd love you to come out for dinner afterwards. They thought you was really funny. And, and I was like, no, no, I can't. And that was about 10 years ago. And I've regretted it so much. Oh, mate. What an idiot. Who, who does that? What an idiot. Even you've got to say 10, 10 words. Hey, good evening. Here's ACDC. Get off the stage. <laughs> That, I just overthought it, and I was just like, my thing was like, no one needs to introduce ACDC because they're ACDC. Everyone there knows it's ACDC, right? Who needs some jerk like me going out there going, I can't hear you at the back? <laughs> um, question four, what would you still need to do to feel you've lived a satisfactory life? Uh, uh... There's a, there, I don't know if you've seen the Bruce Springsteen documentary that came out last year. Letter to you. I haven't. Shamefully. Uh, you, you, you'd love it. It's really, really good. Even if you're not a big Springsteen fan. Um, and by the way, aren't we always looking for the something to watch? Mm. Uh, and on my friends, WhatsApp groups, most of the conversations about what's good, what's the new show to watch the Springsteen documentary letter to you. It's on Apple TV came out towards the end of last year. It's worth watching for the first five minutes. You understand why, why is he still need in the age of 70 to do live music and make new music? And he talks about how he has this, it's like breathing in him. He has this burning need to connect, to communicate. And I, I'm not Bruce Springsteen. Uh, on a smaller, smaller, shitter version, I do, to have a satisfactory life, it will be to connect, to communicate. I enjoy talking on the radio. I've enjoyed talking on the radio on very small radio stations with hardly any listeners, just as much as I enjoy talking on uh, bigger. The last show I did in the UK, two and a half million people listening to it. I enjoyed wow. those shows equally because it's just the, the potential of what you can do, um, sharing something into a microphone, whether it's an embarrassing story, you're doing that on the, on the podcast here and that sharing, saying what's in your heart or what was embarrassing, what you struggled with. I think that that's, I've been very lucky to be able to do this so far in my life. And if I can, can continue in some way to do that until the end, I consider myself very lucky. That's all I need. And that, that goes to chatting to my kids and being open and vulnerable with them. And um, that's something I've had to learn to do more of, actually, as they've become teenagers. I think there are two types of dad I've been really. The, the one that tried to make them laugh or they were upset when they were younger. And I guess that worked. Then suddenly when the teenagers, they actually they don't want, they find that irritating. They don't want that from you. They want you to shut up and listen and not try and fix it. And I found that very hard, like really hard because they'd be telling me something was wrong. And I go, you know, I know what you got to do. I know what we can do now. I'm going to, I'm going to go around that girl's dad's house now and kick the doors in. <laughs> you know, I'm going to call the school threatening to shame them on the radio. I'll have that school shut down within the day, within the day tomorrow. <laughs> and they were like, what are you doing? Oh, I thought you wanted this. No, just, Oh God, you ruined it. They just want you to listen. And so, yeah, I think, um, satisfied like is talking, connecting, listening. Yeah. It's that, it's, it's that those are the essential things in a life. Wow. What an education to have daughters. What, what an education on helping to become a better man. Well, in all seriousness, they have, I, mm. I found that they are my greatest trigger sometimes, right? It's an overused word at the moment. I get triggered when I hear someone say, I've triggered <laughs> triggering. I've got triggers about triggers. Um, but actually they are, they're like mirrors, right? And the bits that you get irritated at, when you go away and think about it, you're like, why did I lose my rag then? Or why didn't I say, hey, I know what it's like to struggle. Or I remember what it was like being 17. I was both excited and also scared that 
I was supposed to be a young adult, but I wasn't. I still felt a boy. I still felt overwhelmed. And so, yeah, they are. They are. They are. They're, 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 they're teachers, tormentors, and tyrants. Mm, wow. Um, question five is: Who was the person who most influenced you, and how? Um, first person would be Billy Connolly. I saw Billy Connolly on TV. Never seen before in my life. And I was thirteen years of age, nineteen eighty-six, Saturday night. Uh, all houses in the 80s. It was all about the TV was the star in the house. You sat, all the furniture was arranged around the TV. As soon as you went to someone's house, you look in a room and then the star, like a star, a king in the corner, what's the TV? It was all about the TV. <laughs> it was your gateway to the world. And now we have that on our phones. But before that, way before that, there was just a box in the corner. But it was like, you revered, it's like you worshipped it. Yeah. You, you know, you bought furniture, all arranged, worshipping the TV God. Saturday night, I'm watching TV with my mum and dad. And as a TV show comes on called An Audience With Billy Connolly. And it was an all-celebrity audience. So it was like Michael Parkinson was in the crowd, uh, Dave Adden, you know, all these, all these amazing celebrities. And there was this big, hairy Scottish comedian and the only comedians I'd seen on TV before that were wearing dinner suits and talking about their mother-in-laws. Um, whereas Billy Connolly didn't do any of that. He was talking about being working class. And I grew up very working class. I never heard a comedian talk about that, being poor. You know, and he was talking about, you know, he was talking about real life and doing these very long-winded stories that you couldn't work out where they were going. He didn't care because he was telling you another joke in it yeah, yeah. or telling you just about a person, describing it so well you could see them, you knew them, and then telling a joke about someone you never met before. And the incredible thing was I'd never seen my mum and dad laugh like that, right? They, they were bent over. Laughter was very uh, important in my house, telling a story. You better really not get boring with that story. And my dad would just rip me to shreds going, this is taking ages, kids. Where's oh, it going? Wow. Wow. You had to get into it. To working class thing, you got humour is really important. Mm. And storytelling, you know, very big traditions in working class households. And... Um, Billy Connolly just had this power. It was like, to me, it was like a wizard. He cast a spell over all of us in that front room that night. My mum and dad had proper jobs. Dad works in a car factory and mum was a nurse. And he just brought them alive. And me, I was just like, whatever he's doing, I want to do something like that. He does. It was like a shaman to me. He looked like, he looks like one. Yeah. And it just, I don't know, the storytelling, but storytelling, there's there's some community do storytellings and they always have the upper hand at the end mm -hmm. right and then i had the last laugh when i said that and it's that that works for them billy was never about that you know he was often a part of the story or somebody else wasn't mm -hmm. it's about human frailty you know what it's like to really be human the messiness you know this you know the things that we all do so he's holding it up to say isn't it odd what how we behave with such, such a joy and laughter that it was a real humanity to it, actually. You know, whenever I watch him now, and I must have seen Billy over 10 times, you always leave feeling alive. It's like he's just sparked something, which is why it's so sad that with his condition, yeah. he can't do live anymore. He's had to stop. But in terms of a real influence, even now, my love of storytelling and writing this book and that, it, it, a real spark came back from Billy Connolly, just of like... You know, a story doesn't have to be A to B. You can be funny and tell a story within the story. Mm. And even sometimes he would begin a story halfway through. Yeah. You join it halfway through. And I was like, uh, I, I used to play back a lot of his tapes as a kid, as a bit of a comedy nerd. 
at, at just playing that back, going, why has he started that there? Why is that better there? Why didn't he start at the beginning? And I didn't realize at the time, I, was, I guess I was putting it all together myself, weighing it all up, grading it, you know? So yeah, Billy Connolly, massive influence on me. Um, just seeing what laughter can do to people as well. Um, the power of laughter. And I think actually still one of the best safety mechanisms as an answer to life is laughter, mm. you know? And it's just like, sometimes, you know, when something's really terrifying, when, oh my God, I'm not laughing. There, I, there's no jokes about this. It's so serious. Um, and sometimes you have to remind yourself, I've had to do this a couple of times in our extended lockdowns, that actually it's a choice that just out of you, you sometimes can just take a moment and, and go from being deadly serious to deadly funny. And it's that release, that relief, what that does to us as humans. I still think it's mesmerizing. You know, when I see a great comedian do a great joke or a story or someone ad lib a mate or a guy, you know, uh, at a football match ad lib something funny and it creates laughter. I still, I still place that in very high esteem. Yeah. So would you go back to do it? You started off with stand up. Would you go back at any stage? Yeah. I did my first gig when I was 18, you know, literally five years after seeing Billy. I was, I was 18 and it was a job. It wasn't really like, you know, it's certainly, this would have been 1990, yeah, 1991. It wasn't really seen as a, as a job, a thing mm -hmm. to do. Um, and so it was, an, it was quite an odd thing to say as an 18-year-old to your mum and dad, I'm going to be a stand-up comedian. But to be fair to them, they were like, cool, what do you need us to do? What do you want? Oh, wow. And then when my dad drove me to this pub, a country pub, where there was like a, a magician on before me, uh, it was terrible. He was like a postman and also a magician. And he was awful. <laughs> And I, I, um, I remember I uh, went out there. It wasn't like it wasn't a stage. It was just a you know those sort of back room at a, bar, a, 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 a pub. It was just it was just that. Oh, yeah. And uh, I remember I got a couple of laughs, and that was it. I thought it was the most amazing thing to make strangers laugh, especially mm. grown ups. I was only eighteen, and that was it for me. The next couple of gigs I was like, I, I died on my backside. But that first one, I was like, it was. You hear, you often hear people talk about this. It was like. Oh, this is where I can slow down time. I can, mm -hmm. I'm in control up here. The rest of my life feels quite overwhelming. Uh, was this actually just for a couple of minutes? There's something here. Don't know what it is. I don't yet know how to be good at it. Uh, certainly didn't know it become a living, but you know, and it's the same with radio. This is where that room, that microphone, I can, that's where I can, I can, I can, I can slow it all down. Mm. I can control that. The rest of it all feels at times out of control, overwhelming. I'm struggling to catch up with it all. But yeah, that that. Christian, when was the last time you cried and why? Oh, um, since I had kids, it just changed me. I I I, I cry a lot. The kids actually laugh. It's almost daily, Adam. Right? We, we can be watching TV. At what most would think that isn't a sad scene. That isn't a sanity, and I will be weeping. The kids still talk about Paddington 2, where I actually had a full meltdown, where there was an elderly lady with her grandson there, who in the darkness in the cinema gave me, a, you know, was it old, 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 old nanas always have tissues in their handbags, don't they? She, in this, I was sobbing at the scene, right? No one else was crying. No one else was crying. The kids were nudging me, going, stop it. I, went, I, I can't. This old lady actually said to me, she handed me a tissue, and she went, are you okay, son? Oh, right, wow. forty something man. I went, and it, it, I was sobbing. So, but the last time 
was about two weeks ago. I was driving with my 17-year-old daughter and we were doing what we always do when we go for a drive. I pick a song, play it to her. She picks a song, plays it to me. And I get to find out about some new music and stuff like that. And I get to educate her and guess what? Old music, you know. And suddenly she picked this song from Matilda, the musical, mm. which I took her and her sister to see when they were younger. And first couple of bars, it's, it, I'm like, oh, oh no, it's happening. Oh, the tears man. are coming up. It's called When I Grow Up. And it's a song about these kids wistfully thinking about what's going to happen, you know, when they grow up. My daughter's listened to it, staring out the window, staring out to the sea in Australia. And she's 17. She's, you know, speculating fantasizing about what is going to happen. What's she going to do with life? How exciting. I'm looking the other way, crying, crying that she's breaking my heart. She's doing what I did. What, you know, not just leave home. I did it again, you know, to move to the other side of the world. Right. What's more heartbreaking than raising kids knowing that they're going to break your heart one day and walk out the door. And that's what they should do. You did that. And so all this is happening in this car at half 10 on Saturday morning. I'm crying so much. I have to pull over. Right, oh, wow. and she doesn't quite know what to do. And I went, I trying to speak. This guy, yeah, just seventeen, and you're doing what you should be doing. She goes, she puts a hand on my shoulder, and go, it's going to be okay, Dad. And I actually put my hand on hers and went, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and then I could hear when she got back in, I could hear her running, telling us to go. Oh my god. Ah. <laughs> play when i grow up to dad you're just having another midlife crisis like moving to australia big shout out there to tim minchin look what look what you've done yes uh, tim's fault yeah that's um former former guest on this podcast i might add um question seven what is your current state of mind oh right now concerned <laughs> yeah uh concerned because lockdown uh, I speak to you in Melbourne, lockdown number six. Wow. 212 days, I think it is today. Uh, just found out uh, an hour ago, going to be it for a while. Going to be in this ext extended lockdown for a while longer. And without getting into, you know, any of the kind of, uh, oh, where do you go with it all? We are where we are, right? And um, I'm concerned because they're not my kids. They're fed up of yeah. homeschooling. They're teenagers. I would have hated it, Adam. Hate it. To have not been a teenager, but... They want to be out with their mates. Yeah. That's what they should be doing at that age, 15 and 17. I feel sorry for them. I worry about them. I worry about their mates. So how am I? I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah. that would be my status update right now because I literally chatted to you after hearing the press conference, watching it with them and just feeling their powerlessness mm. and mine. It's very hard. It's very confronting as a parent because... You know, whenever your kids are struggling, you just want to go, right, let's go and do this, or let's go away for the weekend, or let's go out for ice cream, let's go for a walk. And it's just like that, it, those often distractions and that, they're, they're not there now, you're not having those choices. And I'm lucky, I don't have to worry about paying bills. I can still go and do my job and pay my bills. So for most people, it's, a, it's really hard right now. So yeah, in, in answer, uh, concerned. Yeah. What do you consider your greatest achievement? Um, I'm going to take it as given that um, people would understand that actually becoming a dad is my greatest achievement and greatest pleasure and privilege. It is. I would then say, right, I was really thinking about this, this question because um, it, I think if you'd have asked me 15 years ago, I would have told you pretty proudly all the awards I'd won, Adam, mm. seeking validation from you mm. as a man and actually, and actually 
getting confused about you and my dad, you know, which now <laughs> benefit with some therapy, Adam. You know, I'm 48. I can I can say safely to you, Adam, you're not my dad. So I don't we don't need to do that. I won't I won't embarrass myself by doing that. And I really thought, what actually is my greatest achievement? You know, what would other people say? What would my wife say, really? And what would my kids say? And maybe people that enjoy listening to me on the radio and the people who sent lovely emails about the book. And I think actually, yeah, it's quite a big thing for me to say this. I think it would say my greatest achievement, actually, it's taken me a long time to learn this, maybe unlearn it, but anyway, is actually that what I've always thought as my weaknesses, being too sensitive, getting overwhelmed, having anxiety, actually were, they were kind of superpowers. And they were actually what the world needed of me. People, since I moved here, they're fascinated to know why, what did I do? Why did um, the show do well? And actually, um, there wasn't only one thing. I turned up here thinking I had to be the funniest person on the dial. And there's a lot of other people being funny in the morning. It wasn't that. It was actually being vulnerable, being vulnerable, being honest was the thing that they needed more than being funny. I can be funny. I am funny. But what I actually really needed was me to actually talk about some other stuff, some of the struggles in life, some of the stuff that we're not very good at talking about doing that. That is what actually, if I could say anything, I think that's what people wanted. That's why they've listened to the show, why they're listening to the show. So in terms of my greatest achievement, it took me a long time to come to that. It really did. And if you've read the book, you'll know about a kind of mini breakdown I had about eight years ago with very bad panic attacks I've never had before. And I had to go and get help. I suddenly couldn't do what I love to do, you know, control that space, go in a radio studio. And I had to go and get help. And through that, I did have to learn a very hard lesson for me. Um, and I hadn't even told mum and dad about the panic attacks or any of my friends until the book came out this year. But um, it's that. It's learned, that has been my greatest achievement, actually, is learning that those sensitivities, those bits that we often say we don't like about ourselves, actually, when you talk from those places to your friends or your other half or your kids or people who are listening to your radio show, you're actually giving a chance for connection. You are. It never not leads to that. And you get to know each other a bit better. Why is our stories a failure um, and getting it wrong? Are the funniest stories, you, just get, you know, who, who wants to hear a story about their, their mate becoming successful? It's boring. If they want to tell you a story about falling over in the street the other day and knocking an old woman over, like, oh, I'm all ears. What happened? Yeah. And so, yeah, I think turning what it, what I felt were weak, weaknesses, being too sensitive. Why can't I be, why can't I man up? Why can't I be like other men? And realize actually that sensitivity and better talk from that place and open it up a bit and hopefully help other people with that um, from time to time. That, that is a that is a strength. I always thought it was a weakness, a part of I hated about myself. When I had to go and get therapy, I hated the therapist, hated having to go there. I thought it was for screw-ups. I was very cruel to myself. And often I think the way we talk to ourselves sometimes in front of the mirror, you look awful. Oh, my God, you look exhausted. You'd never have a friend if you spoke to um, another human being like that. But we think it's all right just to speak to ourselves like that. And it's so, because, yeah, it's I think because you and I came from that generation, though, it's it's yeah. it's like I don't know if the young generation are like that, but we have all these voices in our head, like yeah. you fat fuck. What are you? Yes. What are you? Why do you think you should be on fucking television? It's like constantly on stage being heckled. That's right, you know, by some drunken heckler. But you're doing it from within. It's a very cruel way to be. And so, yeah, I think my greatest achievement is that because it was life changing for me as a, as a husband, as a dad. You know, let alone someone who talks for a living on the radio and, you know, wrote a book about all this. So, yeah, it would be that, actually. So, yeah, thanks for the question. It made me 
again, just realized, oh, you know what? I'm still learning that. I'm still trying to admit it to myself that it's, it's okay to struggle. What was the moment when you realized I don't need to be, I don't necessarily need to be funny. I, I can actually just talk to people and be vulnerable. Um, I think the biggest time I learned that, there's a great quote by uh, an Irish um, writer, and he's a poet. I've only got into poetry the last two years. I used to have a natural distrust of any guy that weren't, yeah, I love poetry. Yeah, yeah, you just say that. You just say that. Well, I sort of fall into it by accident. And a great writer called David White, and he's got this great quote, great line about you often meet the new version of yourself in the form of a stranger. Uh, and I love wow. that whether it's a stranger coming out of yourself, a new version of yourself, you don't quite know yet. I'm sure about or often literally a physical stranger where suddenly someone comes into your life. Sometimes you don't even like them to begin with. You get, don't like that guy. And then suddenly they become a very important kind of mentor or guide or something happens. And he's right. That happened for me in the, in the first year of the radio show, ratings were tanking. It was really, it was news everywhere. The English guy wasn't working that came over here. And um, I remember I got an email from a listener. It wasn't one saying, go home. Um, no one likes poms. It was one saying, hey, I really enjoy listening to your radio show. Worked in London a couple of years. Now back home in Melbourne. Um, I wonder if you could help me out. I've recently been diagnosed having stage four terminal bowel cancer because I didn't do the test you get in Australia when you're 50. Didn't do it. Vanity, like a lot of guys, shoved at the back of the wardrobe. Suddenly, five years later, get very ill, go to the doctor. And he's like, why didn't you come sooner? You know, could have saved your life. This is this is terminal. You will die because of this. This email, it's, it's guys just saying, "Can you share my story on air?" So that some of your listeners do the test. I ring him, and he's really funny and he's really honest and he's powerful in his vulnerability. Right? He won't. He's, he's not defined by. It. He's not bound by. It. This is just like on a Tuesday night. And so at the end of it, I said, "Look, why don't you come on the show? Why don't you come on the show and you tell your story? You do it." And so he did two days later, right? And I remember people on the team, we didn't have the ratings to back it up. They were like, wait, what? You're going to get a guy on at 10 past eight to talk about bum cancer. Even my wife went, no one wants to hear about bowel cancer, right? At 10 past eight. So the thing about cancer is like, we don't ever want to hear about it anyway. Um, I just thought, well, this is about the most important thing I can give to the listeners. This guy's he's interesting. He's got a story to tell. I sort of doubled down on it. I thought, well... I didn't really have anything to lose, to be honest. I thought, well, this is genuinely what I think I should do. It wasn't about being funny. I got him on. Oh, I had him on for an hour. And he was called Peter Logan. He was a lovely guy, really funny. And he was really honest about it. And people were, people were ringing in and they were thanking Peter, thanking me for talking about cancer, actually honoring it. And a story of hope. Peter was saying, don't do what I did, you know, get the test you know, have a life. Don't, don't do this. There's something very honest and raw about it. And unfortunately, cancer is one of those things. I've lost too many family members and, 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 a, and a great friend of mine who asked me about a big influence in your life. The comedian Sean Locke yeah. died two weeks oh. ago. Uh, a really good friend of mine oh, for over sorry, 20 mate. years. An amazing, thanks mate. Amazing comedian who, you know, should be here now. Um, we've all lost someone to cancer that we care about. So it is like it shows up on x-rays. It's a shadow. It's, it scares us. You know, and I was scared to even get someone I'm talking about in the morning. I was like, oh, what if is cancer going to get me to punish me? I, I really want, I was slightly scared about evoking the spirit of cancer. Yeah. But at the end of it, he did this really amazing speech, right, about life. You know, and this was just a listener. He had a job, he worked at the airport, but 
I just thought magical was happening, Adam, right? And I've just seen the lines going. People wanted to just, people were crying, people were saying, thank you. You know, no one does this. And that changed everything. You know, for days we're getting phone calls. Um, within six weeks, the Council Council of Australia had said that there'd been a 600% increase in men returning their kits. Wow. Amazing. Wow. And I know this because Peter said, jokingly at the end of it, hey, do the test, guys. And if you do, just write on the back, Peter sent me. Oh. And people did it. It's not something out of a movie, right? Peter, give me goosebumps now. People did it. And talk about a legacy. Talk about creating value in a life when actually you're dying. He could have easily been bowed by it like any of us would be. Mm -hmm. Totally understandable. He refused to be. He was defiant in it. And, he, and I, I thought it was inspirational. But the big thing I took away from that, it was another light bulb. It was like, right. Were, we, it was a funny hour as well. We're still, there were still jokes there as well because he's a funny guy. But it was about to be honest. And sometimes when you're honest, some of the best jokes come anyway because they're, they're written from a deeper place. And that was it for me. I realized then this is what this is what I should be doing more of this when it's right, not in a contrived way. It's ten past eight and it's time for Cancer Corner. <laughs> Who am I joined by this week? Not that, but just when it's right. I'm now going to accept that invitation like Peter emailing me. And I, I, I know that it changed so much for how I, what I thought I should be doing on radio and actually more what was needed, what was more of value really in the morning. is isn't just about being their funny friend. It's about something else as well. And so, yeah, Peter, Peter was a, was a, was a turning point for me. So yeah, that, that was the moment for me, really that Peter. Uh, so he went on the show a few times, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Yeah. And, um, he, he, he's not around anymore, sadly. And uh, I, when I went to see him about two days before he died, um, he was in an Arsenal football shirt, like a lot of uh, Arsenal fans, quite miserable sometimes. And uh, <laughs> I was saying, do you know, do you have an instinctive feeling about, you know, how close you are to the end? And he put his beer down. And he said, I just, any football team, whether you know who Arsenal are or an EPL team, whatever, Everyone who's a sports fan will understand what I'm about to say. Everyone has a team that you hate. You actually genuinely hate another sports team, right? And their success upsets you. There was no valid reason for this, but it just it's a thing in sport, right? And your, your hatred for this other one team is often greater than the love of your own team. He just said to me, he goes, I just hope I'm dead before I see Liverpool lift the cup. Liverpool were on the verge and they did lift the cup three months later. And I remember watching it on the news, raising a beer going, oh, Peter, I'm glad that you weren't around to see this. Wow. He wanted to be dead before he saw Liverpool lift the cup. And I remember laughing so hard at that. And I said, that is so, that's what it is to be a sports fan. And it really, I, I still think about that one. Like, it's one of the greatest, truest lines I've ever heard from a sports fan about what it is. And um he sent me an email later on that night saying, hey, listen, thanks for everything you've done. Thanks for coming around. And um, he said, uh, you know, keep up the great work on your show. And I remember he, he his email had this great line. I've still got it printed in my office right above my desk. And it was like, keep up the humor. Don't forget the human. Oh, wow. Thinking, Peter, so you... this guy, he works at the airport. He just comes yeah. fully formed as a, as, as a broadcaster and a savior. All, all this wisdom. Oh. And I'm just like, oh, wow. Yeah, I learned so much from seeing that email. I think life is full of these mini invitations to us all the time to open or close. 
Peter sent me an email and I could have gone, oh, no, I'm not doing this right now. They hate me. They, don't, they, they ain't going to get to like me reading a story off the back of Nickelback about a guy dying of bum cancer. No one's, thank God the English guy came here <laughs> to ruin the morning. But Peter did did show the way for me. He 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 yeah, he did. I think it's quite a remarkable um, thing what happened there. I, I have to quickly backtrack. You talked about therapy before, and your therapist yeah. was quite extraordinary in and in, in mm-hmm. the sense that one of his um one of his cures was hand to hand combat. Yeah, like I said earlier, I didn't want to be having therapy. All right, you know, I had to go. I couldn't go to work. I couldn't go and sit in a radio studio, radio studio, mumbling to microphone. I was having these panic attacks, and if you've ever had one, you think you're going to die. You don't know what's going on. I didn't know what was going on. I wanted them removed. You know, I remember going to tell him that first time. I just want them cut out. And he's going, right? Where are they on you? You know, I think he just was like, this guy is unbelievable. Who is this guy? Is he for real? But he, he worked in a shed. And when I've told people this story, they're like, did you just exaggerate? Like, no, 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 I've still got to my phone. You know, he worked out of a shed at the bottom of his garden. It was a very nice shed, but it was two chairs in a shed. And so, you know, and I, I, I would go every week and I'd go walk down the bottom of his garden and we'd be in the shed. And he was a very different kind of therapist. I mean, once he asked me if I could lend him some money to cover the next couple of weeks up front. It was, it was just, it was just great. I miss him. He was he was just what I ne- I needed. Does he do Zoom? Does he do Zoom counselling? Yeah, yeah. He should do live from his shed. <laughs> and then um, I remember once he had a cut lip, and I said, "What's happened to you? Were you mugged?" He goes, "No, I was in a road rage incident." I went, "Aren't you? Aren't you meant to be?" He goes, "Who said? Who said that I, I, I'm 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 meant to be above it all?" I never said that. Who said that? He was just, you know, that David White quote gave you. Oh, you have to meet the new form of you in the form of a stranger. This guy was that the man in the shed. Anyway, so about four weeks in, you know, I'm, you know, still struggling with these panic attacks. He says, get up. And I'm like, what? He goes, get up, wrestle me, move me. And he was like in his 60s. I'm like, well, I'm going to push you through the shed wall. <laughs> he goes, try it. So I go, and, oh, God. And then, when, you know, pushing a man in his shed, and I'm paying for <laughs> I'm pushing him, in it, and this old fucker, he won't move. And I'm now getting really embarrassed. He starts laughing and giggling, going, move me, move me. And I'm going, I'm trying. I'm, trying. I think, and I'm starting to feel really bad about myself. And I know I'm having panic attacks. I can't shift a 60-something-year-old man, you know, in his shed. And we more, then we start grappling. He's really leaning against me, right, like a boxer on the ropes. I'm leaning against him. And in the end, I managed to fling him into his chair. We fall over. And then he goes, I'm literally now on sort of a top of his chest, like UFC ground upon, and then goes scream. And I went, I'm not, I'm not screaming. I'm not, I'm not screaming. But yeah, when in another week he, he brought in a punch bag, and all I did an hour was hit that and then talked in between it. And I was like, what the fuck are we doing? Is this a is this a hidden camera show? It's just are you where are your certificates? I haven't seen any, by the way. So he's like, are you actually legit? Or did you just tell me you were a therapist? But yeah, he was he was great, Adam. He was exactly this kind of wild, slightly rock and roll out there therapist that uh yeah, he 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 really helped me. And he cut your panic attacks out? He didn't actually cut them out. All right. <laughs> I remember about about three months in, he went, Look, I cut to the chase, I'll save you a couple of months of therapy. What your problem is, you need to make friends with the panic attacks. I was like, no. Yeah, right. You know, he goes, no, no, you do. It's because you hate that part of yourself. When you don't, you'll be fine. And about three or four (sighs) weeks later, I had that. I was like, he goes, you wouldn't, if your kids came up to you saying what you were saying to yourself, would you speak to them like that? I went, no. 
Why are you doing it yourself then? Change that, you'll be fine. And actually, that oh, is God. what what helped and what I advise anybody. They'll go, what did you do? What did you do? And it's just that in a nutshell. You don't need to go and wrestle with a stranger in a shed. What a great guy. Mm. Uh, what an interesting man. So, so it was the, a, a mixture of the panic attacks um, and perhaps a little bit of the counselling that, that precipitated this move to Massively. Australia. Yeah. Yep. He didn't say, oh, listen, on one final thing, why don't you um, move to the other side of the world? <laughs> Gold FM. Yeah, Gold <laughs> FM. I think a little hiring at the moment when you prep with guy, <laughs> right? Um, well, what it did do is once I start to realise what was really going on behind them, and often there's a wisdom in anxiety. There is. There's something going on that's trying to get your attention that you've been ignoring. And I, I'd been ignoring it like I guess a lot of middle-aged people do sometimes with alcohol. I'll work harder. I'll do stand-up tours. I'll build something new. There was a lot of really what I would call avoiding and distraction what was really going on which was like I I'd almost kind of come to a realization in my mid-40s kids are getting older they're going to be teenagers they're going to leave um I've kind of got a point to eye now my career where I've been lucky enough to do all this stuff now I'm thinking what well what happens next I'm halfway through my life what do I do next and so I think the panic attack was about that actually it was trying to get my attention to realize actually yeah what what do you want now for the rest of your life and so through that, I'd realized I'd lost a lot of my mojo. I felt very guilty about it because I had a nice life. I had a job that I'd always dreamed of doing. I was winning awards. I had two and a half million people listening to a radio show. This was like, this was everything. And I was, I was actually, I felt quite empty. Here. Um, and so I started to realize I needed my mojo back. And my wife and I have always loved Australia. And we had a couple of glasses of wine one night. And my wife went, why don't, why don't we move to Australia and you do radio there? I went, you up for that? I said, oh, I might die on my backside. She goes, yeah, well, because you didn't do a good show. She goes, I'm up for going, see how, see how it goes. So it, it came from that. You know, wow. and I remember, I remember ringing Andy Lee. I'd got to meet the boys when they were in the UK doing Gap Year. I said, do you think it would work? You know, me coming there, the, the accent, he goes, oh, it'd be challenging. Um, but yeah, it would. Challenging is the greatest under, <laughs> I still say now, you should have picked a better word. If you've been honest with me and said it, they're going to hate you, hate you, right? Like no one's ever hated you and I for the first year. Then all of a sudden, they'll be all over you. But that you got, you got to really, you're going to put up with some sledging like you've never had it before. You know the ashes. Imagine that being every day of your life from six a.m. till nine a.m. Um, but yeah, that woke my uh, mojo up. Going and seeing the man in the shed, it was like actually, I need a new challenge. I do. I, I need a. I need, and and actually, I needed a. It, it was a big challenge moving here all of it on and off air the two lives i've got you know my home life with the kids and my wife and then the radio show and all of that what an amazing what an amazing i guess second part your third act whatever of my life it's been brilliant well when you do the uh when you do the mini series of your book the i i guess it's got a tony soprano feel with going to the uh, the, the shrink yeah. in the shed what a great opening episode to a tv show one of the greatest opening episodes to a tv show oh, ever yeah. he's a mafia boss he's in therapy for having panic attacks who's not all in on that show 100%. like oh what is this yeah yeah no beautiful um question nine is who would you want on your side in a battle and why easy answer this one for me my wife, I tell you why, I always say to my kids when they've just been arguing, um, um, or try to argue with my wife, my wife's a former lawyer. And you try winning an argument with a lawyer, whether they're a former one mm. or they're a current one, forget it. It's like you're representing yourself in a murder trial and you haven't got any kind of backup evidence. You're like, uh, uh, and she's like, God, I put it to you on the 5th 
is this guilty or that? How do you plead with these charges? I'm like, <laughs> she is ferocious, right? Wow. She applies logic to stuff. I don't. Okay, I'm not a logic guy. She is. And so I would have her. We would never have moved to Australia. You don't just decide after a couple of glasses of wine, right, it's pack up, we're moving to Australia. All the painstaking research and admin, all of it was done by my wife. She yeah, did yeah. all of it, right? And she, without that, um, I, you know, everything, everything, you know, what an amazing thing to, you know, to go with your husband, roll the dice really on his career and, uh, and your lot, you know, and everything in your family unit to support him doing a radio show, the other side of the world where none of you know anyone. There aren't many women that would do that really when you're both in your mid forties and really it should be about stability and just, you know, taking it easy. Yeah. You work really hard for these things about comfort. We avoid pain anyway, these days, especially in the sort of middle parts of your life. You're just like, okay, we'll just, I've got a job, you know, it pays the bills and stuff like that. And so, yeah, I'd be my wife, Adam. That's great. And lastly, what would you like your last words to be? Thank you. Nice. I would. It would be thank you that I got to have love in my life, that I got to know what love is, and that I got to do the things that I've done. You know, um, I, I'll always be eternally blessed. If someone tapped me on the shoulder after this and go, um, no more radio for you. We just realised, you know, that you've been going on now for years and getting away with it. We caught up with you. We found you. <laughs> it's over. I would even go to them. Thank you. What an amazing thing. I got to do it. I saw Billy Connolly as a kid and I got to do my own tiny little mini version in my own way of what hopefully I saw him do over my mum and dad and make someone laugh and that. And I always think that's what an amazing thing to be able to do. And so, yeah, it would just be thank you. I do like the tapping on the, on the shoulder thing. Was it Shandling and Seinfeld that they say, yes. um, we're kicking you out of show business? <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I think everyone, don't we all have that kind of imposter syndrome? Like, yeah. Is this really allowed? Am I really allowed to earn money doing this? I have to catch myself sometimes when I'm, you know, with my breakfast show team, when we're moaning about this. Why, why haven't we got this? Hang on a minute. Our idea of a bad day for other people, right, is yeah. like, what are we moaning about? Yeah. It's just radio. It's just noise in between the songs. Why are we taking it so seriously? You know, it's that things are like, you know, we, we are quite lucky to get to do this. We're stealing a living, really. <laughs> Don't tell my boss that. It's an art form, what I do, playing Nickelback. <laughs> Mate, that was fantastic. Thank you so much. Oh, so I loved it. I loved, I loved this show. It's a great idea. You're a natural uh conversationist adam and uh, uh yeah like i said when i reached out last year just for actually hearing it and saying oh, the, the, these are brilliant thank you oh thanks mate um, that means a lot it really me. helped me last year in lockdown actually um there's a lack of it's interesting now i think some of the more interesting conversations between people happen in this space podcasting because tv re, tv really isn't about that anymore do you remember like if you talk about parkinson you know, yeah. and those great interviews yeah. he used to do, like with all kind of like Norman Mailer, oh, Muhammad yeah. Ali, yeah. David Niven, you know, all these interesting people, right? And, and it would just be a chat, right? It would be a, yeah. a chat. The hang. It was about that, whereas it's not it's not that now. It's about the plug, it's about the soundbite, the well-told story that's been told up and down TV and radio everywhere. And so I'm finding now a lot of the not the more interesting, illuminating, funny, smart, thought-provoking chats now. 
they're really happening in podcasts. And I think, I actually think that's really good. It's very, a lot of radio people moan about podcasting, you know, they're kind of like sniffy about it, but I, I've actually been inspired by it. I've seen what, what people want from it, what they're getting from it. And I, I listen to a lot of podcasting. I listen to more podcasting than I do radio. And I, I love radio. I care very passionately about radio. And there are people who are very, very good at it, some great talkers. I still think Howard Stern on his prime oh, yeah. is the best interviewer on tv or radio yeah you know forget about all the hoopla years ago with the you know diet of dates for lesbians and all that forget mm, about that mm. you just go on youtube and watch some of that man's interviews and how he talks to people it's it's a, it's an art form it's really really good so i love radio but i love these kind of chats i've lost i've loved listening to you uh you know on, on your shows the tim mention one you mentioned earlier was great the uh the tim rosso one was brilliant really needed that at a time of my life in in second lockdown last year it gave me something can i ask it you know this is this is like a professional i probably won't use this but yeah, sure. did your because you know you mentioned howard stern and that beautiful mm. resonant voice he's got did mm. did your voice change over the years by yeah. virtue of listening to yourself uh, or, was it, or was it just practice no do you know what it was it was when actually um it's very strange this right because i listened back to audio of myself and I'm quite high pitched. Um, it feels high pitched to me, quite high in my, what they call register where you're a little bit mm. unsure of what you're saying and stuff like that. And I think I, I wasn't quite sure of myself. And I actually, I've grown into it. I haven't learned my way. I've had no formal training, but I, it, it happened. It's happened the last couple of years. It actually happened after having the panic attacks and coming a bit more, I think actually embracing myself a bit wow. more and wow. actually owning your voice. And I don't mean jokes. I mean, actually being able to say, you know, I've talked to you about the panic attacks, anxiety. I've had eight years of not been able to talk about that to my, you know, only my wife knew really. In mm -hmm. fact, she was the only person who, you know, best friends and stuff like that. I've only told them in the last three months since the book came out. And so, um, I've grown into the voice of, as I've grown into myself. It's like the right voice for me right now. And uh, no one's ever noticed that before. It's a great question, Adam. But yeah, because mm. so many people now, they're meeting the, you know, they're hearing me now. And I was like, oh my God, your voice is great. Oh, and wow. I'm like, if you heard eight years ago, you wouldn't, I don't think you would have, it's got a different, I think you do is you drop into your heart as a human. That's our, that's our that's mission. Interesting. Life, yeah, yeah, you drop yeah. into a heart. I dropped into my, my voice. And so now it's a different, it's got a different resonance because actually I'm at a different resonance, I guess, with myself. I'm more, yeah, I'm getting yeah. I've got a long way to go and getting more comfortable with being uncomfortable. Um, and that, that's taken me ages. That has taken me a long time. Thank you so much for tuning into 10 Questions. We'd also like to thank all the guests that appear on the show. And if you have a minute, please subscribe via iTunes or your podcast app and leave us a rating. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach me on Twitter at Adam Zwa. So until next time, thanks for joining us.